Well, what a wonderful way to start and spend our Sunday morning in worship together. Thank you, worship team, for the wonderful way in which we have come together around these amazing hymns that reflect uh, just stunning truth from God's Word. And uh, then, of course, as we uh, celebrated and observed the Lord's table together, what a what a life-giving thing that is. And Pastor Brian, thank you for um, leading us in that. We are going to miss you tremendously uh, as you leave. And I think I speak for all of us, the, the, the elders in our church, the leaders, and our whole congregation. We love you, and we're so grateful to both of you for the way you've invested in our life. And I'm glad that we're going to be able to stay connected in uh, the years ahead as you go and serve the Lord. Um, you have been uh, such a wonderful, both of you, such a wonderful blessing to our congregation. So we thank you. It was very special for us to take communion today with you leading us. So that was, that was just a wonderful way uh, this morning for us to just come around the Lord's table with you and remember why you're going. You're going to take that table and uh, the gracious invitation from the Lord to that table to others. So thank you. I want to ask you to pray for two of our pastors this morning that are away, uh, Pastor Ken and Pastor Jairo uh, are in Peru. Pastor Ken and Pastor Jairo are teaching a uh, group of pastors at a seminary in Trujillo, and we're excited for that opportunity. And we've always uh, regularly prayed this summer for the many, many folks that are away. We have about 150 or so college students that are away this summer and uh, ministering at camps ministering uh, in, uh, in local churches, uh, jobs uh, in other countries, other cities, and we do want to pray for them. Please don't forget them this summer. Uh, they bring such a lot of energy and life when they're here, uh, but we don't want them to feel that when they're gone from us, we forget. So that's why I mention them regularly to you. Please pray for them. Our teens are getting ready to go on a mission trip. And I want you to be praying for Pastor Garrett and for the teens and the parents as they start ramping up for that trip. And uh, then we probably have any given week in the summer here, we have 40 or 50 or even more of you that uh, are away visiting family or on vacation. We're so grateful you get to do that. And we want you to know that uh, we're praying for you when that time comes for you, those weekends that you're gone. And I would ask you to pray for the many that are out even this weekend. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to two psalms. And the two psalms that we're going to look at uh, this morning in our worship series are connected. They frame the beginning and the ending of something. And so I want you to look at Psalm 15, and I want you to look at Psalm 24. Now, we're also going to look at a passage in Isaiah 33. So you may want to just sort of figure out where Isaiah is in connection to uh, these uh, two psalms and uh, put your finger there because we will make uh, a journey over there uh, at one point in the message this morning in our series on worship. While I am sort of leading us into how we're going to look at these two psalms, if you can do two things at once, which I know all of you can, especially if you're a husband, you can listen to your wife and do a whole lot of other things at the same time. That was supposed to be funny. And it just flew right over your heads this morning. Uh, maybe you didn't laugh, husbands, because your wife is sitting there, and it wasn't quite as funny to her as it was at me. This is what happens when I go off script. This isn't anywhere in my notes. But I know you can do two things at once, so why don't you listen thoughtfully to how I'm leading us to those two psalms, and put your eye on those psalms, and I want you to look for the commonality between those two psalms. Now, remember, we are right in the middle of a series on biblical worship, particularly with an emphasis on the gathered corporate worship of God's people. And we have said almost every time that we've been together that there are some goals that we have been praying for. The elders have been praying about these goals. You have been praying about these goals. And I don't want to miss our time together as we talk today about the dangerous delight of dutiful worship. And every one of those words ought to get your attention. Every one of those words ought to create a question 
in your mind. But let's look at the goals and let's just remind ourselves of what we're up to and what we're praying for. And there are five of them. And so let me give them to you as we uh, just remind ourselves of why we are in this series. We are praying that joyful worship, our joyful worship, would fuel our glad service to God as a church. That it would fuel our response in glad service to God. So that's one of our goals. We're also praying that thankful worship would be our response to the grand story God is telling in the Bible for His glory. That's our second goal that we're praying for. We're also praying that corporate worship, our corporate worship, would glorify God and help us intentionally magnify His beauty to the nations. And that's going to be a big focus as we come to the end of our series together. We're praying that our personal participation in gathered worship would transform us into the likeness of the one that we worship. We're recognizing that gathered worship is powerfully transformative. And then finally, we're asking God to help us see worship as such an important component of our life that we would give it our spiritual focus and our intentional engagement every week. I prayed for myself this morning. I prayed for you this morning on my way to church that that as you came in the door this morning with everything that has been going on in your life over the past week, and the truth is that most of us know some little piece of what may be going on in your life, both the joys and the sorrows, but you and probably your family are the only ones that really know what happened to you this week. And we bring all of that with us to worship, and I'm praying for myself, because I've had a week like that, and you've had a week like that, that the Lord would just really quiet our hearts and that we would experience what Isaiah experienced when he came to the temple in Isaiah 6 and he saw the Lord. And that's really our prayer. We began our series looking at Psalm 95 and we saw the call to worship and saw the biblical framework that the psalmist laid out for us about what worship should look like. Then we ran to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to see what the hope in worship is, the confident expectation that Jesus Christ has won back for us something that was lost to us in the garden, and that is the glory of God. And Paul reminded us in Romans that we fell short of that glory, but by Romans 5, that glory has been restored to us and is actually being formed up in us. And we saw that as the wonderful hope of glory in Romans chapter 5. And then for the last two Sundays, we have worshipped with Isaiah in one of the most stunning passages in our Bible on worship in the Old Testament out of Isaiah 6. And we saw the power of worship to actually change us, to cleanse us, to, uh, to consecrate us, and to commission us for some grand divine service to the nations for His glory. And so that's where we're at in our series. And this morning, what I'd like to do is do something that we haven't done yet. And I think it's time uh, in our series for us to look at this, and that is to form up a definition or a description of biblical worship. Now, you notice that the entire time we've been talking about worship, we have not defined it, or we have not described it formally, and that's on purpose. That's really uh, where I've been going. As I've been kind of working through uh, the series, I think there are probably, I think I counted over 50 books uh, on my desk that I'm using to to sort of frame up the the worship. There's probably about 20 of them that uh, are the books that are most um, significant to me. And it's very interesting. You would think that with all of the material on worship and with titles like biblical worship, that everybody would have a common definition. But as I've begun working in those works, it's like every, every author has their own definition. And there are some commonalities, but there are massive differences. And so I thought that what I would do today is give you a description of worship that, that falls along three lines. First of all, I thought it would help us not to start our series with a definition, but to work to it, to let the Scriptures sort of lead us there. And secondly, I'm not going to give you a definition of worship. 
I would like the Scripture, the biblical text we've been looking at it, the, over the last numbers of weeks, to help us form a description of worship so that we see what it looks like and we hear what it sounds like. And thirdly, I want to point out something, and I said this early in our series, and I want to make sure you caught it, that our whole series is focused in on the corporate gathered worship of God's people, what we're doing here this morning. And as I've been working through these texts for some time, I have been stunned at something, and initially almost, um, it was so jarring to me, it's almost offensive. And, uh, and then one of our pastors sent me something this week that I thought, okay, this isn't just me. But the emphasis on Scripture is not where I thought it would be when it comes to worship. I thought the emphasis in Scripture, where it would sort of land, would be where I've always sort of put it in my own thinking, and that is in the private devotion, in the private worship of my life. But that's actually not where the Scriptures go. The Scriptures actually go far more to the gathered worship, the corporate worship of the church. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that our private worship and our private devotion to God doesn't count. In fact, it has immense implication for the gathered worship, for what we do when we come together. But if you want to know where the emphasis of Scripture is, it's not where I thought it was. It's where the apostles and even the Old Testament writers put it, it is in the gathered worship of the church. And this is not a new thing. This, this, the Puritans realize this. In fact, one of our pastors sent me a, a sermon this week called Public Worship is to be Preferred Before Private Worship. Now, how would you like that kind of a title? Um, that sermon was written somewhere between 1683 and 1686. And so uh, this is not a new thing. And so I want to just challenge you to think about this as we go through our series and we talk about the significance of corporate worship. We live in a day and age and we live in a country that has individualized everything. The individualization of our life has crept into the church so that we pretty much, and I'm not saying everybody here does this, but we pretty much view what we do in terms of how it affects us. When I come to worship, I'm coming with a set of objectives. I'm coming with a set of desires. I want to get this out of it. I want to get that out of that. And the whole point of Scripture is there's something much bigger that's going on when we come together in our gathered worship. And that leads us now to this description that I want to give to you. It's in two parts, and it should be familiar to you. You should recognize it out of the sermons that we've been studying together. So let me give it to you. Worship is... Now, I can't see the screen back there. I hope you can see it up here. Okay, there we go. Worship is exalting over God's glory. That's the first part of the description. We got that out of Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And we exalt over God's Word in these ways. Eagerly, joyfully, thankfully, humbly or obediently. Those two ideas go together. Repentantly, we saw that in Isaiah chapter 6. Confessionally, We are speaking truth together about God in our praying and in our praising. This is what Paul talked about in Ephesians 4.15, when we're to speak the truth in love to one another. And he repeats this idea in Ephesians 5.19. But we do this through psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. That idea is repeated again in Colossians chapter 3. So we confess things together and we do so expectantly. So this is how we celebrate or we exult over God's glory. And we we saw all of that in uh, Psalm 95 and in Romans chapter 5. And then when we went to Isaiah 6, we saw the second part of the description. We exult over God's glory so that we are transformed by that glory into that glory for that glory. We are transformed by what we see, the one that we see, we are transformed by that glory into that glory. That's what 2 Corinthians 3, 18 and follow talk about when we are moving from one glory to another. We are transformed 
by the glory, into the glory, for the sake of God's glory. Now that's, that's just one way of looking at worship, but it is drawn out of the texts that we've had together. And I am suggesting that you think about that as we go through our message this morning. And what I'd like to do is ask this question, why is it that worship that does this, that is so delightful to God and so helpful to our souls, why is it that it is so dangerous? What makes something this delightful and something this profitable dangerous? And that's why I gave the title of the message that I did, The Dangerous Delight of Dutiful Worship. And to get an answer to that question, we're going to need help from David in two psalms that I've called your attention to today because these two psalms help us navigate a very sober warning that Isaiah gives us in the 33rd chapter of his uh, prophecy. So, with that in mind, let's look at these two psalms. And the first thing I want you to see in Psalm 15 is that there is a massive contrast that is going on between two individuals that represent two generations that are living among God's people who have come to render corporate worship together. There are two individuals who represent two generations who live among God's people who have come together to render corporate worship. Now let me show this to you. Notice, before we get to Psalm 15, I want you to notice something in the psalm before. Notice verse 1 of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. In Psalm 15, you find another person who is saying something from his heart. So in Psalm 14, you meet someone saying something in his heart. And in Psalm 15, and you can see this at the end of verse 2, there's someone who is also saying something from his heart. And the two people are saying very different things. The person in Psalm 14 is saying, there is no God. And the person in Psalm 15 longs to be in the presence of the God that the person in Psalm 14 denies. So there is this immense contrast going on between these two individuals. Now, this is not the first time we've met these two individuals. We met these two individuals all the way back in Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk, he does not stand, he does not sit. And, and there is an individual who's described as a sinner, as a, as a fool, as a scoffer. And then there's another individual you meet in verse 2, and this man delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates in this law because he wants this law to shape his life and shape his character so that he can stand in the congregation of the righteous so that the thoughts of his heart and the words of his mouth, the meditations of his mind would be acceptable to God. And so there are two individuals and these two individuals represent two kinds of people. You'll notice in chapter 14, verse 5, in Psalm 14, verse 5, there is a generation that God identifies with. You see that in verse 5? There are, For God is with the generation of the righteous. And if you go all the way to Psalm 24, you're going to describe that there is a generation... This generation that we meet in verse 5 of chapter 14 that receives blessing and righteousness and approval and salvation from the Lord. So what in the world is this idea of generation? Remember, there are two individuals and they represent two groups of people. We tend to use the word generation chronologically. In other words, uh, it's a group of people who live from this period of time to this period of time. Sometimes it's 30 years, sometimes it's 60 years, and that's a generation. But there's a whole different way of using the word generation. 
The word generation can actually talk about a class of people who are marked by certain qualities or certain characteristics or certain moral values or certain ethical components that are true about their life. And I would suggest to you that when you read this word generation in Psalm 14 and again in Psalm 24, this is what is in mind. There are two individuals who are representative of two classes of people. And those people are identified by specific moral character that is displayed in obvious ethical activity. It's driven by a particular way of thinking about God. It's verified in their attitude toward God's Word, and it dramatically affects their worship. So between Psalm 14 and Psalm 15, there is a great chasm. There is a great divide. There are two individuals that represent two different kinds of generations who are living among God's people. Who are these fools in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 14? And I would suggest to you they're not the Canaanites. They're not the Hittites. They're not the Assyrians. They're not the Babylonians. Throughout the Psalms, you are reading about people who all belong to the same nation, Israel. They have partaken of the same covenant. They bear the mark of that covenant on their body as males, circumcision. They show up to the same location to worship, to the same tabernacle, and to the same temple. They come with the same wisdom and Torah. They know the same rituals. They offer the same sacrifices. But they are two very different groups of people. And I would suggest to you that we have that today. Don't assume that everybody that came to church this morning shares the same generational qualities that we read about in Psalm 15. Now that is a very, very difficult thing to say and it is a very, very difficult thing to hear. And that's why we need the Spirit's help. John said in Revelation, if you have ears to hear. And so let's ask the Spirit to hear or to help us hear. What are these two generations doing in Israel? They are rendering corporate worship to God. They have come to God's tent They've come to God's tabernacle to offer prayers and praise and worship. They've come to the right place. They've come at the right times to worship the right God. But the worship of one group is empty and profits them nothing. And the worship that the other group is accepted by God and brings great joy and results in much spiritual profit. That's a stunning contrast, isn't it? So that brings up the next question, when and where is this contrast lived out? In other words, how do you recognize who is part of this godly generation? And the answer is, they have a longing. There is a longing that is marked out in this generation. And so that's the chronological context that reveals this to us in Psalm 24. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are like the opening and closing of a parenthesis. You will sometimes be reading along and uh, you'll look down in the text and you'll notice there's a parenthesis. There's an open parenthesis and a closed parenthesis and immediately draws your attention to what's in the middle. Psalm 15 opens a parenthesis and Psalm 24 closes it. And what is in the middle of those two psalms is the longing of the generation that desires to see God. The generation that God said in Psalm 14 verse 5 is the generation that will be with Him. And so what you discover in the psalms that are in the middle is there is a righteous representative who begins to talk about the longings of the group. And Psalm 15 introduces us to this person. 
who expresses a deep longing. And what is he longing for? He wants to dwell in the presence of the Lord as a beloved sheep and a welcomed guest. In contrast to the person who says, there is no God, but I still got to go to the temple and I still got to offer the sacrifices and I got to do the rituals and, and, and all the things that go with that. There is another group and that group's representative starts talking and they have a longing. He is, he is actually going to express this longing throughout the Psalms. Listen to what he has to say. For example, in Psalm 16, verse 1, preserve me, O God. In Psalm 17, verse 6, show me your steadfast love. Listen to this in Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. In Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But there is one longing that sort of overshadows all of these other longings, and it's the longing that shows up in chapter 17, or Psalm 17, verse 15, and that is to awaken in the likeness of God. Here this representative realizes that back in Eden, something was marred. The image of God, the likeness of God was marred by sin and it has been damaged by the curse and he longs to awaken in the likeness of God. That's his longing. And then beginning in Psalm 20, these righteous ones begin to pray for their king who fights to protect and preserve and provide for them. Listen to what they say and what they ask the Lord to do for their king. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And then they give thanks to the Lord for the righteous character of their king. And they long for God to bless him and establish him. They say this in Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, he greatly exalts. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You meet him with rich blessing. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. So now these righteous ones are looking at their king and they're praying for him. And then the king starts to talk. And in Psalm 22, this righteous king begins to express his own desperate longing for God's presence and God's help. He says this, They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments, my clothing. They cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. This is the king now crying out for God to deliver. And in Psalm 23, he expresses his confidence that God, the good shepherd, will protect him and provide for him preservation. And as a good host and gracious host, he will provide a table filled with joy and blessing. And that brings us to this question. Who is going to do this for the king? Who is going to do this for these righteous people that make up this generation who long to see God and long to be with God and long to awaken in the likeness of God that was broken and marred and destroyed by sin at the fall. Who is going to accomplish this? And in Psalm 24, you meet a great king who is returning from battle. And the entire city of Jerusalem is is put on notice to lift up the gates and rejoice because this king is coming back victorious from battle. And the way Psalm 24 sort of lays it all out is it goes all the way back to the beginning of creation in the very first part of the psalm in in verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and those who dwell therein. He founded it on the seas. How can this good shepherd do this for the sheep? How can this gracious host do this for the guests that desire to be with Him and to become like Him? He can do that 
Because as the good shepherd, he owns it all. And as the gracious host, he controls it all. And we go all the way back to creation to see this. And how do we know it's going to come to pass? Well, you go to the end of the psalm, beginning in verses 7-10, through 10, and you find out that there is a champion who has come after battle and after being victorious, and the entire city, the city of Jerusalem, is rejoicing. You know, there are two places in your Bible where you see a king riding up to Jerusalem. And they're both in the New Testament. One is in Matthew 21 when you see Jesus riding up on a donkey, just like Zechariah 9 said he would do. And the other is in Revelation 19 and 20 when he shows up and he rides up to a new Jerusalem on a war horse. And the psalmist asks the question, who is this king? Who is this glorious champion? Who is this king of glory? And he asks that question twice. And in Psalm 15, the answer is, He is the Lord, strong and mighty. And you know who it is? It's the one sitting on the throne that Isaiah was seeing when we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. This is a marvelous passage. So Psalm 15 through Psalm 24 speak about the longing of a generation to be with God, to enjoy His presence, and to awaken in His likeness. And Psalm 24 says the God who created it is the God who at the consummation of all of it is going to grant that desire. But how am I supposed to live in the in-between time? What am I supposed to do now while I'm still under the curse And I'm still longing for the likeness of God to be restored in me. And the answer is in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. We commemorate and celebrate right now what is going to be future. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in His holy place? In this life, in the middle of creation and consummation, there are people who seek the Lord's presence and they want to live for His purpose and they want to awaken in His likeness. Now let me ask you this morning as you came to worship, is that what drove you? Is that what was in your heart? And if I have to be, you know, if you were to ask me that question, say, Pastor, well, what about you? My, my answer would have to be, if I hadn't been studying this passage, my, my answer would have to be, I, I, don't, don't, I don't think so. I came with a whole lot of other things in mind. Interests that we talked about in Isaiah as our own little kingdom. I've got my own lesser glories, and when I come to worship, I want to get fuel for those lesser glories. I want to feel a certain way when I leave. I want the worship to do a certain thing in my heart. I want it to go a certain way. I want this to happen, and when God intervenes and God does something that is remotely uncomfortable for me, I'm done. I'm just done. I'm not done in my face, and I might not be done in my presence. I might still sit in the, in the, in the chair, and I might still show up, and if you talk to me, I might smile at you and say, Amen. But in my heart, I'm done. Because worship didn't do for me what I wanted it to do, what I expected it to do. And on top of that, God chose to do something that totally disrupted everything that I was comfortable with, and now I'm just done. And don't think it doesn't happen to pastors. And don't think it doesn't happen to this pastor. This is our common experience. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired David to put this section of Scripture in our Bibles. And so for those of us who know and love Him and desire to be with Him now, there's an important question that David raises, and that's the third thing. There is a consideration that happens, and it starts with this question. Who can enter in to this presence? And the location that really we're looking at as we think about this sober consideration that comes up here, which is our third major idea in the text, there is a serious question. Who can enter in? And in Psalm 15, verse 1, and in Psalm 23, uh, Psalm 24, verse 3, there is a location. And the location is described as a tabernacle or a temple on a mountain 
that belongs to God. The word hill is the word for mountain. There is a mountain that belongs to God, and on that mountain there is a temple. And immediately, if you've been thinking about the series, we're going back to a garden temple on a mountain that was very, very significant in Genesis 1 and 2. And every time the Israelites went to their beautiful Solomonic temple on the mountain of God in Jerusalem, it was supposed to remind them of the garden temple that God was bringing them back to that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 and that we're one day going to celebrate together in the very middle of it in Revelation 21 and 22. And so the question is, who can enter in? And the answer in verses 2 through 5 in, verse, in Psalm 15 and in verses 4 uh, and 5 of 24 is this, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. People who have a life of moral integrity and ethical righteousness that isn't just external. It is actually coming out of a heart that is unified in its loyal love to God. Remember, the fool is saying something in his heart and there is a generation of righteous people who are saying something in their heart and what the fool is saying is there is no God and what the righteous is saying is oh, how I love you. And oh, how I want to be with you. And there is a danger to all of this. And that's what we talked about in Isaiah 33. Listen to the text in verse 14. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? In other words, when you really begin to understand who the God is that you want to come and worship, and you begin to realize He's a consuming fire, you're going to have the same response we saw in Isaiah. You're going to say, how do I enter in? How do I stand? And the answer is you have to have clean hands, and you have to have a pure heart. And there's a confirmation of this in Psalm 15. And the confirmation is, Expressed in 10 statements. We're not going to look at the 10 statements, but if you count them in Psalm 15, there are 10 of them, and they're intended to get you to think about 10 other statements that God gave to Moses. The Torah. If you want to enter in to this tent on God's mountain, you are going to have to perfectly fulfill the law. And you can't just do it by doing outwardly righteous acts. You have to have internal righteousness that comes out of a heart that has been cleansed. You're longing for God. You're living out His Word in your life. You're loving others like God loves. Is absolutely externally useless if there isn't an internally cleansed heart that drives all of that. And that brings us to this incredible consequence. People who have a clean heart out of which pure hands, a pure life is operating, have a consequence. They will dwell on the heights. There is a subtle consequence that we see in Psalm 15. He who does these things will never be moved. What can such a person expect in this subtle consequence? He will stand approved on the day of judgment. You remember in Psalm 1, there is a righteous man. And he says he will stand in the judgment. He will never be moved from the congregation of the righteous. There's coming a day when the person whose heart has been cleansed, and out of that heart come these incredible evidences, this confirmation of external righteousness that's being done in his life, when he enters into that garden temple on the mountain of God, when he comes into New Jerusalem and he faces the judgment, he will stand approved. And he will never be removed. Adam and Eve were removed from that garden temple. This individual with clean hands and a pure heart will never be removed. And so that brings us to this final thing, and that is how in the world will we ever get that? Because if you're like me, you already know the condition of your own heart. I mean, you know the condition of your hands. Which is why the Scriptures put so much emphasis on repentance, isn't it? 
Salvation begins with repentance. But sanctification progresses through repentance. You know, this glory that God is restoring to us in our inner man, the thing that moves it down the path is humble repentance. When the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and shows us the likeness of the God who we want to be like and says, now in this area, here is what the Word says and you need to repent, how do you respond to that? I sent this message out to our pastors and asked them for feedback. I do that from time to time because I want our elders to have part in the preaching and the shaping of it. And one of the questions that was, how how might we apply this as a church? What are you seeing as elders where this message needs to speak into our lives as elders and into the life of our congregation? And one of the pastors uh, sent back this statement to me. He said, you know, it would be very interesting for us to examine when the last time we really repented over something. Because worship should make us like Christ. And you know, and I know. I'm going to speak for myself. I know that I'm not like Christ in many, many places. And it shouldn't surprise me if that's really my longing. If I say, Lord, I want to awaken in your likeness. I want to be in your presence I want to enjoy the garden temple again. I want the image that was marred by sin and, and, and destroyed by the curse. I want that restored. And God says, I'm going to restore it to you. I, I'm, I'm going to restore it to you through sanctification, and it involves repentance. I shouldn't be surprised then when regularly God starts speaking to me out of His Word or speaking to me through the counsel of others, and instead of just hardening myself and saying, well, that was nice, I'm done with that, I repent. And I need that. And by the way, so do you. And that's what worship does. This person will be able to stand. But how in the world is this ever going to be made possible? And Psalm 24 gives us this stunning contemplation that there is a divine champion who comes to fight for our holiness. He comes to fight for our salvation. He comes to fight for our sanctification. He comes to win back the glory that was lost when Adam sinned and when I confirmed it by my own sins. And I want to know who this champion is. And David says, let me tell you the champion is. It's not me. I went out by myself and I fought Goliath by myself. This champion is going to fight a much bigger enemy, and he's going to do it by himself. I went in his name. He's going to go in his own name. I fought for the honor and the righteousness of God. He is going to fight to give you that righteousness. And who is this champion? He is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty. That's who. And centuries later, this Lord, strong and mighty, Jesus, gentle and lowly, rode up to Jerusalem on a donkey. And the gates of Jerusalem trembled. And everybody in that city wanted to know, who is this son of David? Go read Psalm 21, or Matthew 21. And he walked through or rode through the gates of Jerusalem that time to bring peace and to make an atonement for sin. And what we celebrated in our communion service today was all about that. He made you righteous. And then he started talking to his disciples who were so pumped. I mean, this is the Psalm 24 guy. He's here. And he says, now when I come back, I would love to have been around the disciples when that sunk in. What what do you mean when you come back? You're here. We've been waiting for you. This is what David talked about. This is what Zechariah talked about. This is what Malachi was talking about. This is what Daniel saw. You're here. I mean, the gates. I mean, you came through the gates. The gate thing happened. It's all good. You're here. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm coming back. 
And we are still waiting for the coming back part of this. And in Revelation 19, He's going to come back and He's not going to be on a donkey to make peace. He's going to be on a war horse to make war against the enemy that put this whole thing in the mess that it's in. And by the time He's done, that enemy is going to be conquered. Sin is going to have been completely eradicated at the end of it all. And the curse will have been lifted. And we are going to ride in with Him to that new Jerusalem. And the gates of that new city are going to tremble. And we get to do just a little bit of that every week. That's what happens when we come here to worship. Pastor Brian said it so well. He shed his blood so that he could tear open a way for us to come right into that throne room, right into that temple garden, into the very throne room of that. And Hebrews chapter 10 says we can enter boldly and have our consciences cleansed. We ought to therefore hold fast to our profession. This marvelous truth that we're celebrating together in worship and we ought to provoke one another to good works. And the word good there is the same word in Genesis 1 when God looked at everything that he created and said, it is good. Which means that as the word shapes us out of a heart that's been cleansed by this champion through obedience that he won for us through his life and atonement that he made for us through his death, this, this new life, this cleansing we have ought to be welling up in us. And as we come together week after week after week, we provoke one another to the beautiful works, the beneficial works that are shaped by the Word of God. And that brings me to the final application, and I want to pray and then we'll be done. And that is this. Do we really live this way in our personal lives? You know, when our heart is actually shaped by the Word, the Word ought to flavor everything that we do. It ought to shape the way we think. It ought to shape the way we respond. Does it? When you make decisions about life, when you enter into relational tension, how do you resolve it? You go to the Word. I mean, think about the reasons I, you know, I might have an issue in my life and I want to go get help. Why do I want help for that thing? Because I want my life to be better. But if I'm really letting the Word shape my life, the reason I want to deal with the issue in my life is so that I can serve my wife better or I can serve my kids better or I can serve the Lord better. I mean, honestly, as I let the Word start looking into my life, I'm beginning to realize how self-oriented I am. And I know that's true about me, and I certainly hope that you've grown past that in your life, but God is having to take a series like this in my life and say, see how self-oriented you are? The whole reason you want stuff resolved is so that it's better for you. And the whole point of Scripture is, it's not about you, it's about us. It's about my wife, my family, my marriage, the ministry that we have together here. And the reason I want the Word to shape me is not so that my life will be better and more enjoyable and more fruitful. The whole reason I should want to be shaped into the image of Christ and please the Lord is so that I can do what Jesus did in Philippians 2. Not looking on my own things, but on the things of others so that I can serve my wife I can serve my kids, I can serve my neighbors, I can serve the nations, and I can serve the church. And I hate to say this to you, I don't know that I would have seen that had we not been through this worship series. You remember how I started the worship series? At the very beginning I said, my soul was thirsty. And as I've been going through these texts every week, I'm beginning to realize my soul wasn't just thirsty. It was parched. And as God's been watering through these texts, it's been exposing things. And one of the big things that it's exposed in me is my own self-orientation. I'm just being as transparent as I ought to be. I want stuff fixed 
because I don't want to mess with it. I don't want it to mess up my life. I don't want to mess. I, I, I want my life better. I want it to feel better. I want it to be better. And, and so I'm willing to go through the steps to get it there. If I need to get some counseling help or if I need to do this or that, then I'm willing to do that. But my big goal is all about me. And the whole reason I need to get stuff addressed in my life is number one, because I want to awaken in His likeness. I want to please God. And number two, I want to serve others. And we'll never get that orientation when we come to worship. It's all about us. It's all about what we like or what we don't like. And that's really true, isn't it? There is a mountain. (laughs) It's the Lord's. And there is a temple, garden temple. And you have a sure place there. If you're a believer, you will never be moved. And every week when we come together, we can enjoy that. So let me ask you this as we close. Are you willing to ask the Lord to do for you what he did for David? what he did for so many of God's people. Are you willing to say, Lord, whatever it takes, help me to awaken in your likeness. Lord, we thank you for these marvelous texts and for what they do in us, how they point us to the hope of glory. And we long for this. We thank you for these psalms that help to shape our longing. They expose where our longings are off. They help us to align ourselves with the greatest longing that we would be like you, that we would think like you think, that we would value what you value, and that we would respond to life and people and circumstances the way you do. And we'll do that now as we wait confidently for the day we're in your presence in the new Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen.